Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to The North in Numbers, a podcast that gets the human stories behind the stats. I'll be your host, Annie Goke. As a data journalist, I write local news stories based on statistics for regional papers up and down the country. Each fortnight, I'll be looking at the figures that particularly affect the North and speaking to experts and those most affected to get their take on the issues facing our communities. Welcome back to series three of the podcast. To kick things off, we're taking a look at levelling up, the strategy set out by the Conservative Party in their 2019 manifesto. The plans are particularly important for the North, but recent polling by YouGov reveals that most people don't actually understand what levelling up is, and one in four have never even heard of it. To help explain, we spoke to policy experts, as well as people working in some of the key areas the strategy targets. Andy Westwood is Professor of Government Practice at the University of Manchester. At its core, levelling up is really about recognising how unequal the UK and particularly England is and that that inequality exists between regions. So it exists between kind of the north and the Midlands and the northeast and London and the southeast, but it also exists within regions too. So it exists at the local level. So it, it exists, for example, between somewhere like Oldham or Rochdale and the centre of Manchester or the south of Manchester. And the same would be true in cities like Leeds or Birmingham or Newcastle as well. Johnny Webb is a senior research fellow at IPPR North. As he explains, that inequality is a significant problem in the UK. To put it, you know, in stark terms, the UK is one of the most regionally divided countries of its type in in the developed world. So what we basically mean by that is when you look at a lot of other countries, not just in Western Europe, but even some countries in Eastern Europe, the, the levels of inequalities we've seen between particular regions as well as particular places is, is really pronounced and stark. Fundamentally, that's why it's needed, because, you know, despite the fact that the UK is a relatively compact country at size, we do see these significant inequalities um, between places and divergent outcomes. This has also been highlighted by the government's levelling up white paper, which sets out a plan to spread opportunity more equally across the UK. The white paper states, not everyone shares equally in the UK's success. While talent is spread equally across our country, opportunity is not. Levelling up is a mission to challenge and change that unfairness. It means people everywhere living longer and more fulfilling lives and benefiting from sustained rises in living standards and well-being. But before we get to the nitty gritty of how they plan to tackle this inequality, I wanted to know, what led us to the point where levelling up is needed in the first place? Our path to that inequality has been a long one. We've been uh, one of the most unequal countries in in the developed world for for most of the last three decades. And really, it's been it's been driven by lots of different things. Uh, The most the most important has probably been about the the industrial change in the economy. So most of the places that we tend to talk about when we talk about levelling up are places that were were bigger and wealthier and and thriving in a kind of an industrial manufacturing economy. The other thing to say about that is that at the same time as the economy has changed in Britain, government has changed too. So the other thing that levelling up really notices and talks about and is driven by 
is the fact that not only are we really, really unequal compared to lots of other countries, we're also really, really centralised compared to other countries. So uh, most kind of power and decisions and policy making is made at the centre in Westminster and, and local government and regional government and mayors are, are, tend to be pretty weak compared to other international examples. And so levelling up really tries to address both of those things. It's about reversing the economic inequalities, but it's also about recognising that to do that, we need to really, really reorganise the way we govern the country and take power much closer to, to the people that matter and ultimately kind of have a vote in local and national elections. And while the levelling up white paper doesn't explicitly mention the North, the region is a focus, as Andy explains. That has been one of the areas where economic change has been most severe. That's where, you know, the decline in manufacturing, deindustrialisation has kind of hit local economies and wages and businesses most hard. While the need for levelling up has been years in the making, the pandemic has only widened the North-South divide, as Johnny explains. We have seen it get worse, but I think the reason the impact has been disproportionate on the North is because we were sort of starting from a lower level of support, economy which was generally less resilient and an economy which was much more reliant on, on poor, poor quality work as opposed to you know, professionalised um, jobs which exist in industries where people can work from home. And as Andy explains, it's not just the pandemic that has widened the gap in recent years. The pandemic has, has, has tended to make things worse. It's, it's preyed on where inequality is a problem. And, and uh, you know, that includes on health, education and incomes. So, so it's tended to make this a, a harder proposition. Levelling up is harder because of the pandemic. People often talk about, about bad things coming in threes. And uh, the pandemic is the third of what we might call the ABC the kind of the ABC, the austerity, Brexit and COVID have all kind of come together to create a cumulative effect over the last 10 years. You know, whatever, whatever one thinks about each of those individual things, together they've, they've made those inequalities grow. So what inequalities is levelling up trying to address exactly? As Johnny says, the strategy is quite broad. It covers a whole range of specific areas. So when you think about inequalities between places, that can be health inequalities, for example, or it can be inequalities in terms of job opportunities but fundamentally it's about that place-based element so why is it that some places are doing better when it comes to jobs healthy life expectancy all of those things versus some places which which aren't quite doing so well the white paper itself identifies several missions it aims to accomplish by 2030 in order to achieve leveling up these include reducing inequality in living standards research and development transport infrastructure digital connectivity, education, skills, health, well-being, pride in place, housing, crime and local leadership. As it would be impossible to cover all these areas in a single episode of the podcast, we've selected a few key issues to discuss in more detail, including education, which Andy argues is one of the most important. One other thing that the levelling up white paper and that all of these discussions place great store on is, is, is education and skills and the life chances that do or don't come from that. And, and again, we see another correlation that, that the places that, uh, that we think are most in need of levelling up tend to be the places with the lowest skill levels, the lowest formal education level. There are, there are more people with no formal qualifications. There are fewer people with high level qualifications. So, so, so the relationship between the, kind of the, the education and skills of people in a place has a, has a very strong relationship with with the economic nature of the place and also the sense of satisfaction with life and quality of life too. 
Data shows that school children in the North start to fall behind from a very early age, faring worse than average at early years foundation stage and continuing to underperform at GCSE level. The gap is particularly pronounced compared to regions such as London, the South East and South West. While the reasons for this are complex, there is a correlation between educational attainment and deprivation, with both a high proportion of deprived pupils in the North and the attainment gap between disadvantaged pupils and their peers higher in the region than across England as a whole. Pepe Delazio is the head teacher of Wales High School in Rotherham, an area of South Yorkshire that falls behind the national average when it comes to GCSE attainment. The crumbling school is more than 50 years old and is in desperate need of investment for repairs, suffering from leaking roofs, cracked windows and collapsing drains. For many years now, because we've got flat roofs, what we tend to find is that the water gathers on them. Where there's a seam in that roof, water can get between and where the drainage is inappropriate, we, we then end up having water in the school. So it's quite common in the school to, to have five or six buckets around the school that are gathering water. Uh, in addition to that, uh, because the roof uh, was, was constructed in the 1970s, it, it means that our energy costs are such that whenever we warm or heat a room, it tends to go literally straight out of the roof because between ourselves and that flat roof is just some polystyrene uh, covering that, that are uh, ceiling tiles and there's no lagging and, and there's no way in which we can keep the heat in the school. So our energy costs are incredibly high as well. There's not just a financial impact to the disrepair. Pupils are inevitably affected. It's quite sad, actually, Anna, because uh, in many ways, our students have got used to having that bucket outside library, the bucket outside the art corridor where we don't put up a display, holes in the roof uh, over in business studies, us having to change timetables around so that they, they don't have to have their lessons in there. And in, in many ways, our students have become accustomed to having to work around some of the difficulties we've got. While the levelling up of education is focused on attainment, there is a strong connection between this and school buildings and infrastructure, as Pepe explains. They're inextricably linked. Uh, you know, we, we do our very best with the students we have, with the resources that we have. I'm absolutely certain with uh, greater resources and greater investment in the school that we could do more. There's a lot of evidence that says in a new school building where students have got the opportunity to have the most efficient classroom design and then support around them, that their, their outcomes improve by over 5% following the year in which they move into a new building. There's a significant impact that we can have across the whole region if we're able to invest in it appropriately and give our students the opportunities to, to raise their aspirations and to look beyond their local community for opportunities. The main issue standing in the way of making improvements to the school is funding, with education spending one of the areas hit by austerity over the last decade. There was an announcement made in the, in the latest spending review earlier this year that funding in education was now back to levels that it, were, that it was in 2010, and that was heralded as, as, as great news. But to, to, to be back at where we were in 2010 still leaves us some way off where we need to be in, in what is a, a 21st century world that we're living in. And that the lack of investment throughout those 12 years has put a cost at a high price. Uh, you know, education is a time sensitive process. If you've been at school during those 12 years, then you'll have missed out on opportunities that you wouldn't want people to miss out on. And decisions have been made throughout that decade, you know, 12 years, where head teachers have had to decide whether or not 
they can, as, as we've said, put some new school windows in that mean that the, the room that students are in are, are watertight and warm during the winter, or whether or not you've got the teaching assistant to support the students that have got the, the learning difficulties that, that they need the support with. And all teachers will prioritise people over the windows and, uh, and over the building. We're not, we're not unusual in that regard. And, and so we've had to face some difficult decisions over that period. As with many things, the pandemic has only made things worse. Research from the Sutton Trust shows poorer children have been hit the hardest, widening the attainment gap between disadvantaged pupils and their peers and making levelling up more difficult. At Wales High School, COVID has caused such anxiety for pupils that some have turned up drunk for lessons, while others have been traumatised by domestic violence. The school has used all its cash reserves putting support in place, prioritising people over bricks and mortar. The school has now put in an application to the school rebuilding programme and is hoping to be one of 50 schools to see major rebuilding and refurbishment this year. Although it's worth noting that this particular programme is not part of the levelling up agenda. What has been part of levelling up has been the reversal of the real-term cuts in school spending and increases to the minimum level of per-pupil funding that primary and secondary schools receive. I asked Pepe what he thought of the measures and others proposed by the government's white paper. Well, I think that, that anything that we're seeing coming into education at the moment is based upon those 12 years of underfunding. And what if we're not careful, what we end up doing is getting us to a level that we should have been at several years ago. And, and it could seem like a, a plaster over what is a significant wound. And so I'm yet to see the actual numbers uh, of what are, are going to come into education. And it's the meat of this that, that concerns me most. I, I hope, I sincerely hope that levelling up is something that will make the opportunities for young people better, certainly in the region uh, that, that I'm based in uh, and educating in here in Rother Valley. Uh, and, and I know that we've seen initial parts of that uh, around a skills agenda to help young people be better prepared for the world of work. But I also know that, that levelling up is about transport infrastructure. It's, it's about making sure that uh, that the, the health and well-being of people in the community is prioritised and for making sure that there are opportunities for, for gainful employment as well in high skill jobs and, and, and high areas of unemployment are addressed so that the people feel they've got an opportunity in those areas. If we can do that in the levelling up agenda, then uh, I just think that would be brilliant for, for the areas that have been recognised and will have knock-on effects across the region, which will be incredibly positive. So, I'm, I'm aspirational, I'm upbeat, but we want to see it arrive, don't we? Pepe is also worried about rising costs, with soaring inflation making it difficult to offer fair wage increases for teachers without making sacrifices elsewhere, and the current energy crisis driving up heating prices yet further. The latest round of education funding sees schools set to receive at least a 2% increase in per-pupil funding in the coming academic year. However, this is well below the current rate of inflation, which stood at 6.2% in February and is predicted to reach 8.7% at the end of 2022. It means many schools will still be seeing a real terms cut. Meanwhile, the national funding formula, which is used to allocate money across schools in England and was introduced in 2018-19 to ensure investment is distributed fairly, may actually be doing more harm than good. Reports from both the Commons Public Accounts Committee and the National Audit Office show the introduction of the formula has seen money shift away from the poorest schools and towards more affluent ones. 
In response, Kevin Courtney, the Joint General Secretary of the National Education Union, has accused the government of doing the reverse of levelling up, while Meg Hillier, MP, Chair of the Commons Public Accounts Committee, says this directly contradicts the levelling up agenda. It's something that Pepe is also concerned about. My fear with the levelling up agenda, if we're not careful, it becomes a levelling down agenda for some people, and it, become, it becomes open to your definition of fairness and I think what, what we have to accept is that uh, that all schools are in different contexts and different environments and for some schools in an urban area where they've got easy access to a range of resources and they can form families and collaborations of schools there are efficiencies and savings that can be made in those schools whereas for a small primary school that's in a rural area they will face different challenges and and for leveling up for them may be very difficult because there are costs built into the way in which they deliver uh, and provide their their support for young people that will be very very different and, and that's before you get into the challenges that a school in one part of an urban area might face that has got a very middle class intake in which the students arrive uh, almost oven, oven ready for their education where in another area of uh, an urban area the students may well uh, arrive with a range of different issues that are presented as part of their socioeconomic backgrounds that create greater challenges for that particular school and in all of that all schools want to do the best for young people but some will have a more difficult job than others. Other levelling up measures to tackle inequality in education have been promised in the white paper but it's unclear when these will come into effect. Overall, Pepe is cautious, but optimistic. The, the key thing for me is for us having a better understanding about what levelling up really is. So, so we've had the initial announcement. Uh, I think we're all keen that levelling up is something that has a positive impact on all our communities. And what we want to see is, that, is what, the, what is the reality of that? What, what actually is going to make a difference in our schools, in our communities, on the doorsteps of our, of our local people? so that they can feel that, that levelling up has reached them. I think we're all, we're all hoping to see that this is going to be something really positive and life-changing, and what we need to see is the reality of that over the next few days and weeks. Meanwhile, another key area for levelling up is transport, as Johnny explains. You look at somewhere like London, for example, what makes London successful? Yes, it's, you know, it's got world-leading financial services, but the reason London works as a city and kind of works as an economic, you know, geography is because you've got good transport infrastructure. You know, it's very easy to get into London from the southeast. It's generally, you know, easy to get across London. You compare that to places in the north of England, and quite often it's a very, you know, very different story. Not only is transport within, you know, city regions quite poor, but actually it's difficult um, in terms of getting from towns into those cities too. So there, you could make the case, for example, that actually. Let's make sure that places outside of London get London level, London levels of transport investment. And that's not taken away from London. We're not saying, you know, to, to give them the London levels, we need to reduce the spending on transport in London. But rather, we should look to find ways of replicating that more broadly across the country. Gareth Dennis is a railway engineer based in York. I asked him what improved public transport could offer people in the north. The opportunities those things can provide is that you can, you know, without even thinking about it, you've got, you know, the northern equivalent of an Oyster card or your contactless card, you tap in, you go where you need to go, you're changing trains without even thinking about it because the trains reach the station so frequently, you don't care about timetables, and you get where you need to go without needing to drive, without risking your, your safety, kind of driving a car around, without emitting anything, you have a nice experience walking around, and this and society, and society it enables you to, to reach jobs, it enables you to, to travel 
you know, have, have freedom. And particularly when it, the good thing about frequent public transport is that frequency enables fares to be more rationalized, which means it's more accessible for people, not necessarily super, super cheap. You, know, you don't have to have free fares for public transport to be a lot more accessible. The studies on free fares making a big difference are kind of mixed, actually. But certainly bringing fares down and, and actually not even just explicitly making them cheaper, but making them more simple, more straightforward. So, you know, people use public transport instinctively in London because they don't have to worry about it. You just tap the card. You know that it's basically limited to a fairly sensible amount if, if you travel loads that day. You don't have to worry about it. That means that's accessibility, that's simplification. You know, not having to worry about queuing for ages at a ticket machine to get your train in, you know, to get your Mersey Rail train to wherever it happens to be or whatever. So, so that on the one hand, you've got the opportunities that, that, that public transport can, can provide. On the flip side, if we look at the misery it causes when it is at its worst, we only need to jump back to May 2018. And when the timetables collapsed, particularly in Manchester, and the misery that caused and the stories of people being, being sacked from their jobs because they were consistently not getting to work on time, choosing to have to move their families so that they didn't have to commute, choosing to drive. And, the, the, and you know, driving is not a, you know, it's a much more dangerous way to move around, which means that if you're moving, if you're resulting in lots of people driving, ignore the stress and the anxiety and the reduction in uh, health uh, as a result of driving, but you're actually increasing their likelihood of suffering harm as a result of the car crash. So we want to get people in trains for, for safety's sake. So all of those stories of misery are just examples of what bad public transport, what poor public transport, um, you know, how much it hinders people's livelihoods. As Gareth explains, the reality of public transport in the North is currently falling far short of what it could be. Transport, public transport across the north is um, pretty crippled compared to what it could be. I, I mean, I, I'm never a fan of making direct London comparisons, but unfortunately, like generally within the M25, you can, the, the way I talk about it, in, particularly in terms of trains, like you turn up at railway station within the M25, whether it's London Overground or the Tube or whatever it is, and a train will turn up so quickly that you don't really need to care about the timetable whereas in so many places in particularly across the north we have quite spread out suburban areas you know around west yorkshire for example sort of south of where i am you've got all these kind of um, ex-mining towns that have a pretty sizable population are pretty spread out and they've got a poxy little station with a bus shelter that has a train every maybe every hour okay if you get an every half hour train amazing but the chances are you've got a train every hour and in lots of cases it's even worse than that According to Gareth, in suburban stations across the north, you might have 2 to 4% of the number of seats per hour that an equivalent station in London might have. The challenge you've got is that with our infrastructure being so, uh, lots of lots of issues, lots of ageing problems that have been fixed elsewhere and haven't been fixed across the north of England, we've got shorter trains, which means that even if you're running double the number of trains, you might still have a service that's maybe, I don't know, 16% of the equivalent in a, of a suburban area within the M25. So um, it, it's not restricted to the north. This is a problem in the East Midlands, particularly. It's a problem in the southwest. But the north has a substantial build-up of population and opportunity that is, that is lost, that is missed by this massive gap. So how did things end up so bad? The rail network is often very much seen as a, as a connector into London. And so all those other interconnectors are just not considered in the same way. The other challenge you've got is that policymakers do not see the North as a large metropolitan area, and they don't therefore see the opportunities that it can provide. These attitudes have led to a historic lack of funding for transport in the North. Figures from IPPR show that over the last 10 years, the North has received £515 less per person than London in transport spending. And it's not just the case that if tomorrow that number became equal, that we would be allowed to stop moaning up here as well, because we're talking about decades 
of that being the case. It's not just that that's, oh, it's fallen behind. No, no, we're talking about decades of underinvestment. As with education and other areas, the pandemic is making things worse, particularly as more people have started using public transport again as restrictions have been lifted. Across the north, we have seen much more rapid returns to public transport than um, than elsewhere, actually. Uh, Greater Manchester is a key example of this, but actually across the north, you know, I'm, I'm travelling on trains quite a bit around here. I was travelling kind of into, over to Manchester on Transpennine recently, and it was absolutely rammed. Didn't help they were, it was back like the olden days. It was just a three-car diesel train again, like 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 the days of old. The other challenge you've got is that these operators are also running reduced timetables. So, so Transpennine Express is still running a 60% timetable from what they used to be. So it's a combination. So we're seeing more overcrowding now than we, we were before the pandemic. The government has had long-standing promises to level up transport in the north. For example, through an eastern leg of HS2 and Northern Powerhouse Rail. Gareth explains that these pledges would have gone a long way to solving the north's transport problems if they had been delivered. So that was what Northern Powerhouse Rail was all about. It was about freeing up capacity on the existing railway network to run more services, as well as, of course, massively improving the the, the journey times for people who do want to kind of connect uh, longer distances between you know, sort of the, the urban hubs. And then when HS2 East, you know, HS2 East is as critical, arguably more critical, because it frees up capacity in an area that is really neglected, which is West Yorkshire. HS2's eastern leg freed up capacity on a lot of railway lines, um, feeding into Leeds, providing a massive amount of extra capacity. Those are the opportunities that those new lines provided. However, both of these projects have since been scrapped, with the eastern leg of HS2 dropped under the integrated rail plan and NPR cancelled in favour of smaller new lines and an extension of the pre-existing Transpennine route upgrade. That's despite the many benefits Gareth argues the original projects would bring. These investments provide a return. They provide a return in terms of, you know, the money that's spent, that money goes to contractors who employ people, they go to designers, they go to... um, uh, all the people who are involved in actually building the thing, that, that money then gets spent and creates tax revenue. Oh, also, by the way, those people get trained and get more skills by building the railway, so they actually earn more, so they then pay more tax. Then all the people who get the benefit of the new railway, they're going to have more opportunities, so that means that there is more tax revenue. So even by the tre- even if we ignore the kind of the social uh, benefits and, and the kind of the climate benefits, just by the Treasury's own rules on, on reducing our debt-to-GDP ratio, which is all they seem to be kind of fixated on, even by that measure, the, investing the full amount of money to deliver these projects in full is an absolute no-brainer. So that that kind of leaves the, the, the question a bit of a question mark on, well, what's the point in chopping them then? I ask Gareth what he thinks of the new integrated rail plan. Oh, everything about it is dreadful. Like it fundamentally does not understand um, the way that railways work. So, so it, the, the, what I've just talked about, that release capacity... Um, the benefits of, of of new lines like HS2 and NPR, it doesn't it, it does not even begin to pretend to understand them. So it just ignores those. It's just looking at journey times and it's saying, oh, forget HS2, we can achieve those journey times on the existing network. Completely missing the point that if you go faster on the existing railway network, you're making that gap that you need to not catch up the slow trains, the stopping trains, gets even bigger because the train's faster, so it takes longer to break, which means that you have even less space you know you can run even fewer trains per hour on that railway which makes capacity so much worse and they've just missed that completely it's it's a a, a technically illiterate document and it's going to have and it it will have if it's carried out a catastrophic impact on opportunities for people across the north and across the midlands it's it's dismal 
The government says that the integrated rail plan is the biggest single government investment into British railways ever, providing certainty to the industry to invest and bringing cities and communities across the North and Midlands closer together, boosting productivity and helping to level up the country. However, in their State of the North report, IPPR say that without delivering promised investment on Northern Powerhouse Rail and leaving only £40 billion in new investment for both the North and Midlands, the integrated rail plan will deliver slim, economic and environmental benefits. One of the government's levelling up missions outlined in their white paper is that by 2030, local public transport connectivity across the country will be significantly closer to the standards of London, with improved services, simple affairs and integrated ticketing. I asked Gareth if he thought this would be possible with what is currently being promised. I mean, no. They're, they're, given the government policies, absolutely not. They cannot They cannot achieve that. From an infrastructure perspective and a, and a service perspective, they can't achieve anything because the IRP is going to cancel all these trains. So, yeah, not great. That's not to say Gareth is completely critical of the government's white paper. Outlining the problem is pretty good. The bit that's talking about the actual problems, it's some really good, solid analysis there. And it's like, yeah, good, yes that can you now do some look at ways to now solve those problems so what does he think is needed to actually solve those problems i I think the first thing okay if we put to one side just absolutely delete get rid of the irp and go back to as the plans previously were proposed but i think bigger than that even is actually put your money where your mouth is and devolve power to the regions devolve power to the north give the north its own access to be able to borrow money to be able to raise gilts, to borrow money from the Bank of England so that it does not need to go through Treasury. Like, honestly, one of the main problems Britain has is that we are entirely so hyper-centralised into Westminster. That needs to be broken. We need to absolutely smash the power of the Treasury and devolve power to the regions. And honestly, unless we do that, we will not see the improvements that we need across the north and across the various regions across the country. The White Paper does acknowledge that levelling up will require the government to empower local leaders and communities. It also says it is not just about boosting productivity, pay, jobs and living standards, or spreading opportunities and improving public services. It is also about restoring a sense of community, local pride and belonging. As Andy explains, this is another area where the North is lagging behind. There are big gaps in quality of life and uh, a big element of of levelling up has been about things like, you know, how do you feel about the place that you live in? It's uh, it's about the quality of your high street or the opportunities that you might have if you're kind of a a young family in in a town or a particular city in the Midlands or the North, for example. And and that's important because that, that social fabric is a big part of how people feel about their places. And like other areas uh, in the economy and in society, that that quality of life, that, that well-being, that sense of place has also been in quite significant decline over that similar time frame. So, so I think a lot of it does come down to kind of what, what do people really think matters in their places? It's not just good jobs, good employment, wages, all that kind of thing really matters, but it's not just about that. And, uh, and, and that's where sort of quality of life comes in. One area that can have a big impact on this is culture which is mentioned in the white paper as a key element of the government's mission to close the gaps in pride in place. Katie Shaw is Professor of Contemporary Writings at Northumbria University and Director of Creative Communities at the Arts and Humanities Research Council. 
culture is hugely important, not only in terms of our sense of place, in terms of where we immediately live and work, but also in our terms of our kind of identity as, as a nation, right? Um, the soft power of the UK is, is one of its greatest strengths. And it's through things like the BBC and the British Council that we're able to mobilize that in terms of international diplomacy, in terms of international tourism and our creative industries, which, you know, let's not forget before the pandemic, we're our fifth biggest export. I asked Katie how the North is falling behind places like London when it comes to culture. The North has always been a cultural powerhouse um, and we are famed for much of our culture, both in the UK and across the world. But we have some real uh, restrictions and limitations on that that have really come to light in recent years. Uh, We're falling behind largely because of access um, and that's both access in terms of things like hard infrastructure So transport and travel and roads and rail and getting to culture and arts and heritage organisations, but also um, soft infrastructure. So how we can help people um, navigate things like digital connections, because so often, particularly in the pandemic, we were told, oh, it's okay, you can watch the National Theatre online from the north. Uh, You can only do that if you have a good broadband connection. And for many of us here, Uh, we didn't even have enough broadband to uh, do homeschooling and things. So the idea of prioritising a theatre experience uh, was strange to some. So we've got issues of access, but also we've got issues of representation in terms of us falling behind. So if you think about who produces culture, who consumes culture, and also the kind of people and the kind of accents and worlds that you see on the stage and you read on the page, there's huge disparity still between North and South when it comes to representation. So what are some of the factors that have led to us falling behind when it comes to access and representation? I mean, funding is one, funding and opportunity. So obviously, if we're thinking about where money goes historically, um, we have come through almost a decade of austerity. And then we've had um, logistical challenges from things like Brexit and COVID. Historically, we've had most funding going to big national organisations, big NPOs, largely situated in the capital or in major cities. And redressing this imbalance is not just about improving people's pride in place. It can also have knock-on effects in other areas too. Um, Culture can play a really key role in delivering a lot of the post-COVID priorities that have been identified by government as a kind of an enabler to levelling up. Things like net zero and climate change, our domestic and international tourism, overhauling our retail and hospitality, things like high street regeneration, but also digital integration. Unfortunately, the importance of culture hasn't always been recognised, but it looks like this is changing. I spent the best part of a decade sat at Northern Powerhouse events that were about business and brokerage and trains and hard infrastructure. And there wasn't even a panel or a mention of culture in many of them. And I think that has shifted. It's shifted because of that recognition of the economic contribution and the perceived value of the creative industries, but also soft power as well as the hard income. And when we saw the DCMS Cultural Recovery Fund, you know, the biggest safeguarding scheme of culture, investment there ultimately means we're in a better position to grow now. The DCMS Culture Recovery Fund Katie mentions was set up to tackle the difficulties that have faced our cultural organisations and heritage sites during the coronavirus crisis. And as she's already mentioned, the pandemic has played an important role in driving change. And COVID's actually really acted as a pivot point uh, for culture in particular. And now we're seeing a kind of a shift, certainly in um, Arts Council spending, where even you know, we've got arts organisations in London that are being told they've got to um, spend 15% of their budget 
outside working with the regions, but also we're seeing more than ever leveling up of funding going not just to cities across the UK, but also to city regions, to towns, to villages, to coastal and also to country communities, areas where we've just not seen funding before. The government's cultural investment by the Arts Council in England is expected to rise to almost £250 million outside of London by 2025. That's equivalent to a 19% increase to support culture outside the capital. However, Katie isn't sure the funding that has been offered so far is enough to close the gaps when it comes to culture. In terms of we're thinking about the one word that is never used here is austerity. You know, if you proportionally underinvest for a decade, don't be surprised that if some things are further behind, right? It's like, you know, kicking someone for 10 years and then asking why they're not bouncing up off the pavement. It's not an equal starting position and levelling up has to take that into account. But it's not all about the money. Some of it is about how you spend that money. Some of it is how you enable things like partnership working. So I'd like to see more focus on that and less focus on competitive funding schemes that basically work a little bit like a you know a beauty contest (laughs) where people have to artificially compete against each other or in some cases cities have to compete against each other um and there's winners and losers what i'd like to see is where we kind of a funding scheme and an infrastructure that enables everybody to bid to bid in partnership and to bid in an inclusive and cooperative way And while she welcomes the government's changing attitudes around culture, Katie feels that the white paper is generally lacking when it comes to levelling up in this area. I think culture was incredibly marginalised in the white paper, along with other areas, it's fair to say. You know, virtually no mentions of child poverty, for example. Uh, But I think its weakest area was in metrics in relation to some of these things. You know, how do you measure civic pride and changes in people's sense of place and identity? and being happier where they live. And if you look at the appendices of that white paper, if you're sad like me, um, you'll see that there actually is is no real sense of how they're gonna measure other than asking people in 2030 whether they're happier where they live. So for me, I'd like to see more focus on measuring up to level up. You know, what metrics are we gonna actually use to to see how far we've come? Um, And I'd also like to see more focus on the white paper in terms of culture, and clarity on long-term funding rather than short-term interventions. Because the report itself says, you know, the paper says that we've got a huge systemic historical problem with short-term interventions that, you know, reinvent the wheel time and again, waste money and waste potential for progress. And what we need and what I'd like to have seen in terms of them using culture in the white paper is the ability for culture to act as a connector to enable that join up that we need between government departments. You know, we need culture to show how it reaches across education, health, transport, the treasury regarding cultural value. That being said, she still believes there are huge opportunities for levelling up if culture is given the focus it deserves. I feel like the very fact we're talking about these issues is helpful. I feel like the fact that culture is now on the agenda it is helpful and, and is an advance, but it can't be seen as a nicety and nor can it be seen as kind of an asterisk to some of these problems. I think that culture, if used properly and if mobilized properly, can be for the first time in a long time recognized as being a great opportunity for our post-Brexit, post-COVID economy, um, and also really as a really quick catalyst for government to deliver leveling up. You know, our case for culture inquiry report really shows that culture can be a quick lever to achieving some of these levelling up aims. And to be honest, the government don't have a lot of time to lose. 
And if levelling up is going to move away from being just this kind of mixed metaphor into something meaningful, then they've already lost three years in cycle due to COVID, which is unfortunate. And there's now a really short time between here and the next election for them to generate those kind of projects, those point to projects and policies where they can demonstrate how and where they've improved local communities and lives across the UK. And culture can really help with this, as well as providing multiple spillover effects for things like health and education and well-being. As Katie says, the time frame the government has given themselves to achieve the missions outlined in the white paper isn't very long. They have pledged to meet these goals by 2030, which is only eight years away. For Andy, that's nowhere near enough time to get the job done. When the levelling up white paper was first sort of being drafted and kicked around and it was delayed several times uh, to, to its eventual publication in February 2022, uh, you know, 2030 might have seemed like quite a realistic objective for this government. Um, since that time, uh, particularly with the controversies over, uh, over Christmas and Partygate and, and so on, 2030 suddenly looks a little further away and a little less realistic than it might have done when the paper was first being drafted. But whatever way you look at it, this, this, is, this is really a, a, a job that will take 20 or 30 years. It, it took 20 or 30 years and more to create. It's going to take 20 or 30 years to really make some progress on. However, like others we've spoken to, he thinks it's a good start. I, I think to be charitable, the, the, the levelling up white paper starts that process. It certainly doesn't finish it and it certainly doesn't have enough in it to get us all the way to the end of the job. Uh, but to be, to be charitable, at least it, it recognises the scale of the problem. It recognises the scale of, of the centralisation of, of government's own organisations as being part of that problem. Uh, and, it, and it sets out a pretty, you know, a pretty strong ambition that this is going to be a direction that government you know, needs to go in over the long term. So to read it positively, it, it recognises those things and it's, you know, there are some good first steps. W will it achieve everything it needs to? Not a chance. A government spokesperson said, Our levelling up white paper sets out a clear blueprint for how we will reverse this country's geographical inequalities, spread opportunity and transform communities across the UK. The missions set out in the white paper are targeted and measurable, and we will publish an annual report to track their progress. Towns and cities across the north of England are already benefiting from the levelling up funding. £40 million has gone to Newcastle and £80 million to Liverpool through the levelling up fund, and Greater Manchester has received a share of £120 million to regenerate derelict land. Like Andy, Johnny thinks that things are heading in the right direction, but agrees that more will be needed to actually ensure levelling up happens, particularly when it comes to funding. Things do seem to be moving forward in terms of the fact we now have a strategy there, we have a white paper, we have, generally speaking, a broad commitment to hold government to account on this agenda. So I think we've seen some positive developments in terms of we've got a strategy there now. I think in terms of some of the other things we would have hoped to see by now, we maybe not quite seen the transformational impact that some proponents of leveling up have claimed that it, it was likely to achieve. So a lot of people will say, well, it's just the beginning. We've got things like the leveling up fund, the towns fund, these sorts of initiatives to get money into places. But the reality is they're not huge sums of money. When you break it down in terms of the actual money that places are getting and the amount of money that equates to per person in the north of England, for example, the leveling up funds worth about 32 pounds per person. So it's not huge sums of money. Um, it's not groundbreaking stuff and it's probably not going to shift the dial 
in terms of you know really closing some of these place-based divides um and that's also in relation to you know the level of white paper you look at the ambition in there and it really is quite ambitious it's you know if it's done and it's a success it will add years onto the life of people who live in areas at the minute where health outcomes are worse for example but you're only really going to see that if you actually see some real investment in the agenda and i think that's what's been missing so far and i think it's very much still missing so i think promising people better outcomes only goes so far fundamentally to want to see actions because you've had lots of promises to improve you know these things over the years and they never really amounted to much Meanwhile, the White Paper sets out for the first time a clear framework for devolution in England. One of the White Paper's 12 missions, on empowering local leaders, sets out the government's intention that every area that wants one should have a devolution settlement in place by 2030. However, Andy believes more is needed in this area. The the White Paper is, is very good in its analysis about the relationship between spending and policy and where decisions are made. So, so it, it, it's acknowledgement that, that Britain and England in particular has been amongst the most centralised kind of governments in, in the world. It, it, does, it does kind of commit to new waves of devolution, pushing decision making and resources closer to the places that we're talking about whether it's big cities, whether it's, you know, the mayors in, in Manchester, West Yorkshire, South Yorkshire, and a whole new set of uh, potential mayors in places like kind of Hull and the East Midlands, but also also in, uh, in the northeast, uh, uh, north of Tyne and, and Teesside. It recognises that, that more power has to be pushed uh, to those uh, organisations and to those individuals, but it doesn't do enough of that. You know, it's still the Department for Education that decides, by and large, what happens in human capital. It's still the Department for Leveling Up and the Treasury that decides how much money local government has to spend on a whole bunch of issues, whether that's about supporting business or regenerating the high street. And and the same is true in things like R&D. Most of that is decided at the centre rather than kind of, you know, in the individual regions or places that we're talking about. And so there's still, a, there's still a long way to go, I think, to, for, for, for the reality of local power and government to match the rhetoric or the aspiration in the white paper, which basically says, look, we need to, you know, we need to change the way we govern the country in order to make, this, uh, to, to make this a realistic ambition. It's a point that Johnny agrees with. What this agenda really needs, and it's really important if you're thinking about divides between places and, you know, making sure that all places benefit from, you know, public policy fairly and equally is, is making sure that this is something that's done in collaboration with places, not done to places. And I think a really important part of that is thinking about where power lies. So we've seen a promise in the white paper to basically create more institutions that are fairly similar to the uh, Metro Mayor model that we have in England at the minute which, you know, broadly speaking, it's good to be talking about, you know, putting in place new institutions and creating that level of power at the local level. But I think we also need to think about local government's role in this and that a lot of the things which are outlined in the white paper ultimately will fall on local government. So I think as well, making sure that local government feels it has the capacity and it has the powers that it needs to to help the government realise this agenda is crucially important. I think if we don't get that power shift right, not only are we going to not achieve a lot of the policy stuff, but also we won't address kind of the wider issues which leveling up speaks to which isn't just about you know generally speaking prosperity and life outcomes it's also about a sense that people feel disconnected from politics and that politics doesn't work for them so by improving local level representation whether that's supporting local government or having new elected offices or finding ways to directly involve communities in decision making i think that's also really important to this agenda 
As has already been mentioned, one of the concerns around levelling up is that it will see some areas fall behind. Andy also thinks this is a key point that the government needs to address if the agenda is to be successful. I think people are worried and, and I have good reason to be worried that government, uh, either locally or nationally, still has to make choices between different places. And um, there's a lot of concentration in, in the white paper on improving, improving the big cities and the economies of the big cities, even though there's also a mission that says that the government want levelling up to see the quality of jobs, productivity of different places, and the wealth of all places rise over that period. So that's the first mission. But a lot of people would say that, you know, a lot of the emphasis is going on the sort of big city regions as a way of doing that. You know, those places do need work. <laughs> they do need investment. They do need policy to kind of improve their performance. But at the same time, we, you know, because of the politics, because of kind of people's own sense of their own places, we need to make sure that that isn't at the exclusion of, of either those towns that are near to them, the Oldhams, the Rochdales, or the, or the Bradfords, uh, uh, you know, or, or kind of the Middlesbroughs, these sorts of places. Um, we need to make sure that kind of there are plans and investment that, that means that they can keep up, um, but also that, that, you know, people in those places can see the tangible improvements around them to the jobs that they can get to the education that kind of they or their kids their, their kids get and to the kind of quality of life that they they want to see in leveling up because if they don't see it they're going to vote a different way so uh, you know this is really hard to get right and, and it isn't it isn't about saying we should invest more in towns rather than cities we need to invest in both and we need to we need to think very carefully about how they relate to each other and we need to think very carefully about those towns that are quite a long way from cities. You know, again, coastal towns, places like Blackpool, uh, uh, you know, are a long way from uh, places like Greater Manchester. And, and, and uh, our, our policy needs to, needs to work, if you like. The framework needs to work across all of those places for, for levelling up to be as comprehensive as it's uh, um, aiming to be. The general consensus is there's a big job ahead of us when it comes to levelling up. And the government may need to do more than they have so far to achieve this. However, Johnny remains optimistic. I think the good thing about the Leveling Up agenda is, regardless of whether we do see these outcomes achieved over the next decade, what it has done is it has really put into the centre of our political discussions the importance of thinking about inequalities between places and the fact that actually our current political model doesn't work for everyone, it doesn't work for everyone. So I think regardless of where the white paper goes to, actually, whether we call it Leveling Up or whether we call it something else, I think this is going to be central to kind of our political discussions over the, the next decade. And I think that's positive in that we will now see politicians take it seriously and actually we'll see them try and make efforts to close some of these divides. So even if it doesn't happen in the form of this white paper, I'm optimistic that, you know, we will see some progress on this. Thank you for joining me for another episode of The North in Numbers, our first in series three. It was written and hosted by me, Annie Goat, and produced by Mark McGill. Thank you also to all of my guests for appearing on this episode and shining some light on the levelling up agenda. Please join us again on the 22nd of April when we take a look at how the pandemic has been impacting our mental health, particularly children and young people. <laughs>